Well, do you expect to see miracles today? Uh, Not phony ones, but genuine ones. Uh, Would you know one if you saw one? What actually are miracles? I mean, today's reading from Matthew 14, we have two of the most famous of the miracles of Jesus, walking on the water and feeding the multitude. Uh, Walking on the water is so famous, it's actually become synonymous with being God. You know, he thinks that he's God, he could even walk on water. Uh, Tiger Woods famously walked on water in an advertisement playing a golf shot straight off the water and people did think he was God but it was called the Jesus shot as he took it off the water and put it into the hole. Yet we don't think that actually he is God or that that was a miracle. In fact we think we know what's happening, that is it's a trick shot not the trick golf shot, trick photographic shot, that there was actually just a timbers there just under the surface of the water that didn't show. We can work out, as we see it, we marvel at this man walking on water and playing a golf shot, but we don't marvel as if it's a miracle. We marvel saying, aren't they clever? Because we know it's all just a trick. We know that it's a fake because of its context. Tiger Woods is clearly in a humorous advertisement. And so we place this amazing event in the category of trick advertisement rather than illusionist magic, we could put it there, rather than miracle or sign of God. But what about the miracles of Jesus? What category do we put them in? Many people saw them and were told about them. Two of the ones that saw and recorded were this feeding of 5,000 at one time and walking on the water of Galilee in a storm. So what's the context in which Jesus did these amazing things? What is their meaning? What is their purpose? What do you make of them? At one level, it's all very simple. It's just a matter of compassion. Verse 14, he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion upon them, and he healed the sick. Jesus saw their need, and with compassion of the servant of God, he met their needs with healings. But yet it's not the healings that are described in detail that draw attention to Jesus, it's the feeding of the multitude, it's the walking on the water that is truly astonishing. Today people heal, but today nobody walks on water or feeds multitudes. So what do they indicate? What is the context in which we would say, now these are miracles, these are genuine, these are the very hand of God? For most people, they are signs of Jesus' divinity. His power over nature was supernatural. It was an exhibition that he was no ordinary man, that he was God. Who else but God can walk on the water? Even the winds and waves obey him. The things he did were impossible for mere humans to do. And when he encourages the disciples, he speaks in tones that sound like he is God. Verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The little phrase, it is I, is exactly the same Greek phrase for I am. And if you remember in the Old Testament when Moses met God and asked who he was, he was told I am, I am who I am. And so when Jesus gets in the boat and says, I am, is he talking of himself as God or pointing to God 
Or is he just saying, it's me? So is Jesus claiming to be God? It could be. For our passage concludes in verse 33, where we see, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Does doing impossible things like walking on water prove that Jesus is God? In part, people think so, because since the Messiah age, we have a very strict view of what is and is not possible. It was the machine age of the 18th century following that gave us the heresy known as deism, where God made the world by the strict laws of physics and mechanics and then left the world to roll on of its own accord like a machine. With deism, miracles became important, for miracles are when God interrupts the flow of the machine. He, he puts his fingers into the mechanisms and holds back the hands for a little while. And so miracles are either the signs of God's existence by deists or denied as not possible even to God by sceptics. And so the great war over miracles has taken place in the last couple of hundred years. Today's physics is so complex that what we thought previously was impossible, we've now discovered ways of doing it ourselves. Uh, the truly great physicist of the 19th century, a man called Lord Kelvin, said, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. Uh, again he said, I have not the smallest molecule of faith in aerial navigation other than ballooning or the expectation of good results from any of the trials we hear of. I would not care to be a member of the Aeronautical Society. Of course, he said this just a few years before the Wright brothers took off and flew and demonstrated. He was, he was, the, he was the, the, the royal scientist. He was professor in uh, Glasgow. He was the father and founder of, uh, of the laws of thermodynamics, he was one of the greatest physicists of his time, but it wasn't possible back then. He was not alone in rejecting the possibility of flight. Eighteen months before the Wright brothers flew their aeroplane, the prestigious American scientist Simon Newcomb said, flight by machines heavier than air is unpractical and insignificant, if not utterly impossible. It was not just flight and a hundred years ago. Napoleon, a hundred years before, said that about plans to make a steamboat. You're planning to make a ship sail against wind and tide by lighting a fire below deck. I don't have time to listen to that kind of nonsense. What can be done and can't be done? Well, it's not just way back in history. Sir Harold Spencer Jones, the astronomer royal of Britain in 1957 said, space travel is bunk two weeks before the Russians launched Sputnik. If it hasn't happened, it can't happen. But in fact, it can. For the deist, all these kinds of things means that the evidence for God, namely miracles, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as we discover more and more things that we can do. As we come to understand more and more of the machines and realise that what we used to think was miraculous doesn't take such a miraculous intervention from God. That means the sceptic, the sceptic thinks that 
that the things that only God could do, now humans can do, and therefore they're not miracles, and therefore there's not God. But believers say, you see, God could have done it all along, for it was always possible. We just didn't know enough about how the world works and about how God works in the world. And so, whatever happens in this area of life, you just reinforce your beliefs. But were the disciples calling Jesus God when they worshipped him as the Son of God? For the term Son of God usually means Messiah rather than God. God the Son is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. But the Son of God is the Messiah, the Christ. Now, our confusion, of course, is that God the Son became the Son of God. And so when we meet Jesus, we have one and the same person. But the phrase God the Son is actually the technical term for God. And the phrase Son of God doesn't necessarily... I'm a Son of God but I'm not God, in case you are in any confusion in this matter. I'm not God by calling myself the Son of God. The Son of God just meant Messiah, meant Christ. And the miracles of Jesus that are recorded for us are too familiar for us to notice how strange they are. All our lives we've heard of feeding the multitude or walking across the water. We've heard of these and they've even become proverbial, but they're not repeated much. Not then, not today. Very few miracle walkers, workers walk on water and feed crowds like this. Why did Jesus do these particular miracles? Have they got any symbolic significance for us? And here is where we see the context giving meaning to the events. For Jesus comes fulfilling Old Testament expectations expectations of the Christ, expectations of saving his people, of bringing a new exodus, of being the new Moses. And he feeds the multitude in the wilderness as God fed the children of Israel in the wilderness under Moses. And he takes his people in safety across the sea as God took the children of Israel in safety across the Red Sea in the time of Moses. And we're looking for a new Moses. We're looking for a new exodus. We're looking for a new salvation. And this man comes and does the Moses things. These are not casual displays of supernatural power, These are not just interventions in the mechanism of the creation so as to demonstrate he is God. These are deliberate miracles pointing to the fulfilment of the Old Testament, pointing to the fulfilment of the expectations of the coming of the Messiah. He's not demonstrating that God exists, though he does, nor that he is God, though he is but demonstrating that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the bringer of the kingdom of God and the new exodus. And that is why the passage records the miracles of the disciples, for they're sharing in the Messiah's work. Remember back a few chapters ago in chapter 7, chapter 10 rather, that he sent them out proclaiming as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, which they did spreading his name and his fame all across the land so that even King Herod heard about it. Now here in chapter 14, we see Jesus challenging the disciples to do the feeding. Look there at verse 16 of chapter 14, verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. 
they were the Messiah's men, but they couldn't feed God's people in the wilderness, not without the Messiah. And yet with the Messiah, their five loaves and two fish were able to feed 5,000 men as well as women and children. And they, the disciples, notice, they, the disciples, were the ones who did the feeding. As it says at the end of verse 19, at the end of verse 19, where he says, then he broke the loaves, gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to the crowds. This is what lies behind Peter and his walking on the water. For if it was truly his Lord, then he too wanted to share in his kingdom. Verse 28, we read, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. The disciple is never greater than his master, but the disciple is to follow his master and to do the works that he sees his master do. Peter is following his master when he leaves behind the boat and steps out into the wild sea. But just as they can't feed the multitude without their master, so Peter can't walk on the water without his master. And as he takes his eye off his master, he sees the wind, he sees the waves, and he sinks. The passage therefore focuses upon the response of the disciples. At one level, their response is to both the natural and the supernatural. So in verses 15 to 17, their response is very much on the natural. Verse 15, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said they need not go. You give them something to eat. And they said, we only have five loaves and two fish. It's a completely natural conversation, isn't it? Here's the bread, here's the fish, there's the shops, there's the crowds, send them away. It's got no hint of a supernatural miracle in this or about what's about to happen. And in verse 26, their response is very much to the supernatural. For when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. I don't know what it is. But it's not part of the natural order. It's ghostly, it's spooky, it's otherworldly, it's terrifying. Notice they didn't say, it's a magician's illusion. They didn't say it's an advertiser's trick photography. I mean, that's what we say when we see Tiger Woods walking on the water because of the context in which we are. They're not in our context. Their context was quite different. But they failed also, notice, to see the Son of God, the Messiah, the Kingdom of God, the new Moses. For their response was fear and it is in the events that follow we see the complex responses of fear and faith and doubt. Fear was the natural response to the extraordinary things they were seeing. They may already have been under some fear because, well, the waves, the storm, the danger they were in. But Jesus walking on the water would have been a terrifying sight. And Jesus' words of assurance were to see that it was him, not a ghost. And don't be afraid. 
Rather, they were to trust him. They were to have faith in him. They were to take heart, take courage. But when one of them, Peter, tried to do it, he was almost overwhelmed by doubt and cried out, Lord, save me. But was said to be a man of little faith. Now, doubt is a big issue, connected both with miracles and with faith, but misconnected in most minds. Today the word doubt means to feel unconvinced or uncertain about something or to think that something is unlikely or to suspect that something is not true, likely or genuine or that somebody is not sincere or trustworthy. They're fairly standard dictionary understandings of the word doubt. But in the Bible that's not what it means. In the Bible doubt means double-minded. Peter is caught between two minds, the Lord who is calling him and enabling him to walk on the water and the wind and the waves and the sea that threaten to drown him. He's caught between two minds. Which will he trust? And so he calls to the Lord to save him for without the Lord there is no salvation. There's no ability to resist the wind and the waves. And climbing into the boat, they worship him. Again, we're not really helped by the English words here. For today in modern English, we restrict the word worship to something that you do to God and only God. But it was not always like that in English. When I was married, I was married according to the Book of Common Prayer. So long ago was I married. And I said to Helen, with this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow. I had a hundred dollars in a motor scooter at the time. But she got them both. She got them both. But notice, with my body I thee worship. For the Greek word only means kneel before. It, it only means giving the worth to someone. And so it was used of humans, even in Matthew's gospel. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Or chapter 9, verse 18, while he was speaking these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay your hand upon her and she will live. None of this was thought of as worshipping God. It was just giving the man the honour that was due to him, giving him what he's worth that they worshipped him, bowed down before him, doesn't mean that they saw him as God. They would have done the same if they had seen him as the Messiah or the Christ or the Son of God. But in seeing him feed God's people in the wilderness, lead God's people safely across the sea, they saw ever so briefly and ever so clearly that this truly was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years, that this was the Christ, this was the Son of God, this was the Saviour who was coming into the world. But what of miracles today? Can they happen now? Are we to expect them? How do we recognise them? What is their significance today? It's a matter of great controversy amongst Christians. So let me explain it to you this way. Firstly, we have to understand that God is king. He is the sovereign Lord over all creation who can do whatever he likes to. 
He's not the absent clockmaker of the deists. He can and does intervene in every aspect of his creation. He uses the world to bring about his purposes and he can overturn his usual pattern of work if he so chooses to do so. Because God is such a king, prayer is possible. We can ask our king and father to help us in any and every situation of life. When things are dreadful and we want change, we want them changed, we can ask our God and father to bring about those changes. Prayer doesn't change things, but God does. And he does it in response to our prayers. He is able and may be willing to change anything. However, because God is king, we not only pray for him to change things, we also pray that God would change us. Especially that he would make us content with his sovereign providence and provisions for us and that he would give us contentment. So then godly people pray for contentment and change. Both are true. Both are things that we should pray for. Say I'm diagnosed with cancer. God can heal cancer. Of course he can. So I should ask him to heal me. God can heal me with medicine. Of course he can. Indeed, without him, medicine alone won't work. So I should ask him to heal me and I should take my medicine. But can God heal me without medicine? Well, yes, of course he can. But why would he do so when he's given us the medicine and the skills to use it? It's like saying, can God wash the dishes without me? Well, yes, of course he can. But why would he? Can God mow the grass without me? Well, of course he can. But why would he, seeing he's created us in his image to rule over the world for him? Via the dishwasher, via the motor mower, we are ruling over the world as God wishes us to rule over the world. But can he do those things without us? He can. But do I expect him to? No, not really. Okay, I have cancer. I pray, for, I don't have it by the way, but say I have cancer, I pray for healing. But I should also pray for contentment. For this could be God's call for me to come home to him. This could be God's purpose for me to testify to him. In the cancer wards, to the society at large. Who knows what purposes God has in mind for me. So I pray for healing. And I pray for contentment. All this is fairly straightforward. Christians pray to their heavenly father, God the king, asking for change and contentment, to change the world and to change our own hearts. But some people go beyond asking for change and contentment. They only accept one side of the equation and become unbalanced. They emphasise it beyond what the Bible teaches. Either they command or reject God's sovereign power over the world. Some people reject the idea that God can change anything other than the heart of the believer. 
They're really unbelievers in the God of the Bible. They reject the supernatural or like the deists, they reject God's will that would be involved in our lives and could actually be interested in saving us. This is not Christianity, this is unbelief. It's the sceptic and ultimately the atheists. Others, on the other hand, try to command God to change the world. They don't ask God, but tell God what he has to do. They speak in terms of naming and claiming it. Name what you want and claim it from God. They forget that they're dealing with the sovereign king and they demand from him what they believe they have a right to. There is no promise from God that all diseases in this lifetime will be healed. If anything, there is the continued promise of God that all people are going to die. And you don't die of old age, you die of diseases in old age. Old age is not a disease. The older I get, the more I like emphasising this to other people, that it itself is not a disease, though it carries lots of diseases in it, one of which will kill me eventually. Again, you see, this is not Christianity. This name it and claim it is blasphemy. It's the magician's spell. It's the cargo cult. The reason for our controversy amongst Christians is that those who command change hear our prayers for contentment and accuse us of unbelief, accuse us of rejecting God's ability to change us. And those who reject change hear our prayers for change and accuse us of naming and claiming it, accusing of us of commanding God to change us. And so a great unhelpful and untrue rivalry is set up between those who pray for change and those who pray for contentment. And there should be no rivalry between those who pray, those who name it and claim it, and those who deny the ability to change, well, there'll be rivalry there. But those of us who pray for these two things, that is right, that is what the Bible tells us to do. When we, when we should be praying for both or for either, without embarrassment. See, when Peter was in the water going downwards, he didn't pray, Lord, make me content with drowning. He didn't pray, Lord, I know you would save me if you could, but thanks for all the teaching you gave and I will see you in heaven. That is not the prayer he prayed in that situation. He just cried out, Lord, save me. Nor did he cry out, Lord, you have to save me. It's in the manual. It's your job to save me. Thank you for saving me. I feel saved already. He cried out, Lord, save me. We don't have to pray both change and contentment at the same time. On, on each and every occasion. Sometimes there's a time to pray for change and sometimes there's a time to pray for contentment. Both are part of our prayer life to the Sovereign King. I guarantee when the doctor tells me I have cancer, my first prayer will be for healing. That's where I'll start. I don't have any problem about praying for contentment, but that won't be my first prayer. It will be for healing. Now let's return back to Matthew 14 and remind ourselves of the real point of the passage, namely Jesus' glory. For what the disciples saw and was on clear view was the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the Messiah come to save his people 
just as the Old Testament has promised. And there was even more to him than the Messiah. For it was not Moses, but God who fed the children in the wilderness. It was not Moses, but God who led them across the Red Sea. And this looked like Jesus feeding the multitude. And this looked like Jesus walking on the sea. And when he got into the boat, he spoke like God. Take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. And when the disciples fell down and said, you truly are the Son of God, you just wonder, was Matthew telling us that Jesus was even more than the Messiah? For who is it that walks on water? Tiger Woods was pretending that he is God. Jesus God's Son, saving his people, looks like God, doesn't he? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death and resurrection. We thank you for saving us. We thank you that you are the sovereign God who rules over all nature and all creation and that you are the loving one who cares for us and listens to our prayers and can save us and rescue us in any and every situation. And we thank you, Father, that we can trust you and be content with the situations and circumstances of life that you sovereignly control for us, that we can know that all things are at work together for good because you are working them for our good. And we thank you, Father, that we can sovereignly be content, in, we can be content in your sovereignty and we can call upon you to change us because of your sovereignty. We thank you for this privilege of prayer and for your loving care that you are powerful and willing to hear us. And we thank you, Father, that we see all this in the, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came as the Christ and the Messiah to do for us what Moses did for the children of Israel to lead us out of our bondage to sin and to death and to take us into the promised land of eternal life. We thank you for the demonstration that he was the Moses, the Christ, that he was bringing the exodus and the day of salvation. And we pray, Father, that you would open not only our eyes and hearts, but the eyes and hearts of all we know, that they too may see Jesus in his glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.